0: Love is love. That is uh, our new uh, modern myth for today. Love is love. And I don't know about you, but it feels like it's just absolutely everywhere. (laughs) Um, Love is love is is a statement of uh, equality. All love is valid. All love is real. All love should be respected, whether it's the love between two people of the opposite gender or two people of the same gender. The slogan, love is love, well, it's just everywhere. It's just common, isn't it? It's on badges, it's on posters, it's on billboards. Every major company nowadays seems to want to align themselves with love is love and puts it all over their marketing material. Love is love, out of all the myths that we've looked at today, to date, over the last few weeks, feels like the myth, the slogan, sorry, of this uh, day. And to give a talk in this series on modern myths, on love is love, well, that just seems dangerous, if I'm being totally honest feels like I could get a lynching to admit that I'm not 100% on board with such an idea. But what makes it even slightly more complicated than that is even though I'm not 100% on board on it, neither am I actually 100% against it. Love is love. Love is love gives people dignity. And that is something I can get on board with. When God made humanity in his image and made men and made women... It's because we are made in his image that we have great dignity. It is written into the DNA of every single human being. People have the freedom to make choices. Choices I might not agree with. I don't agree when someone chooses to follow Islam or Buddhism. However, because they have dignity as an image-bearer of God, I must respect their ability to make those choices. In the end, God... Is the one who reveals what is morally right and what is morally wrong. And, and so as a Christian, I want to call people to Jesus, to follow him and to know him and to love him. But I'm not the final judge. Judgment is left to God. And he will hold all people to account in his perfect justice. I, for, for this reason, I don't think the church can bless same-sex unions either. Um, I don't think that's the morally right thing to do, as we'll go into it later. However, because people have dignity, neither do I think that we should live in a society that doesn't allow people to express uh, their romantic desires either. The Church of Ghana has recently been in, in the news for a bill that makes all homosexual activity illegal, and it makes it illegal even to identify as LGBT. I think this bill is hypocritical, and I think it is dangerous, I think it makes some activity and sin worse than others. I think it strips people of their dignity to make choices. Love is love, gives people dignity, and I respect that. I am unbelievably thankful for my friends who identify as LGBT, for the things that they teach me and the good which they do. I don't agree with the choices that they have made in life, but I don't agree with the choices anyone who has made in life when they have not submitted themselves to God and His will. But I respect their ability to make those choices. And I will leave the rest to God. And now, you could say to the more controversial part of our talk, a critique of love is love. Uh, The gay rights activist turned born-again Christian, David Bennett, says, of love is love. While our slogan was popular, it was shallow at best. Love is love doesn't mean that much semantically, and it provides no definition of what love actually is, nor can it differentiate between the various kinds of human love and desire. And so this quote sort of leads onto to my first point. Do we really think that all love is love? Or do we really think that all love is good love? I'm sure everyone would agree here that the love of a parent towards a child is good love. But when that love becomes sexual, we all think that it is bad love. The cry may then go out that all oh, well, all love needs to be consenting, but what about the love shared between two people committing adultery? The love may be real and genuine at the time, but it will cause pain eventually. So can we really call it good love? To understand what is good love and what love is meant to be, it can't just be based on our human experiences of love. Our experiences, they're just too morally complicated We need a definition of love that comes from outside of us and outside of our experiences. At this point, you might be sitting there just a little bit concerned. Well, I know where this is going. You're going to tell me that we need to follow God's definition of love as he comes from outside human experiences. But I don't like what he has to say on love. If I want to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage, then that's what I want to do. If I want to sleep with someone of the same gender as I am, then that's what I want to do. The natural criticism could be, why should we listen to God's view on sex and love? And in relation to love is love, is particular, why should we listen to what the Bible has to say about same-sex marriage? And the honest answer is, there's no easy way to answer that question, why should we listen to God? We could talk about the biological reality of men and women and how they naturally just fit together like a hand in a glove. We took, could talk about how our society needs men and women to partner up, or we will have no future. We could talk about how there are so many same-sex couples struggle to find purpose in their relationship because it doesn't naturally head towards reproduction of children. We f- could talk about how friendship is complicated when you are sexually attracted to the people of the same gender as yourself. We took could talk about the high levels of anxiety that exist within teenagers because they're all trying to self-define their identity and their sexuality. I could tell you story after story after story. I could tell you the story of my friend Will, who is fully part of the gay world, and he told me he doesn't know a single monogamous couple in all of his experiences. There is so much that we could say to that question, why does... Why, why should we listen to what the Bible has to say on same-sex marriage? But I don't know about you, but I don't always find those answers particularly satisfying. Because at the end of the day, I do know a same-sex couple who are in a committed and healthy and good relationship, and from the outside, it looks joyful and it looks happy and it looks healthy. So why is it wrong? Why is it harmful to say anything against same-sex marriage? What is harmful about same-sex marriage? And as I reflect on that, on the reality of the people I see in front of me, the thing I keep on coming back to again and again and again is that the consequences of actions can take time to be revealed. And the only way that we can know the full extent of our decisions is if we knew everything, but we don't know everything. A teenage boy and girl can be intoxicated with each other and really believe that they love each other. They can decide to commit to each other sexually and they can enjoy it. Then, nine months later, the consequences of that decision is revealed. It is literally born. Sex is about reproduction at the end of the day. Consequences take time to be revealed. A couple might decide to start an adulterous affair. They may feel that everything is good and everything is fine, as long as this can just stay a secret. But eventually, it will all crumble down. The secret will come out, either through guilty, confession, or discovery. And once a secret is out, people will get hurt. Consequences take time to be revealed. When the Industrial Revolution took this country by storm, no one knew what the outcome would be. Yes, huge prosperity and economic growth. But also, we built an industry that has been poisoning our planet ever since. We're now having global summit after global summit, trying to come to terms with global warming, because consequences take time to be revealed. The only way we will know if something is harmful or if it is not is if we knew the consequence of every single human action and decision. But that is something we do not know. Humans are limited. We are limited in our capacity to understand and comprehend. We are fixed in this point in time. We do not know the future. We do not know the outcome of every decision. But God does. He exists outside of time and is present to all of time. Thus, he knows the consequence of every decision and action. Thus, we can trust him and we can trust his word because he knows. So if we're listening to the one who knows all things and trusting the one who understands the consequence of every action, well, what does God say about love? Uh, There are lots of things that could be said said about God's view of humanity and human flourishing and relationships. But for the sake of time, here are just three. Firstly, sexual love is for one man and one woman in the context of marriage. And this is a truth that runs from the very beginning of Scripture to the end. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. When God created humanity, he created us male and female. And straight away, he blessed us and he gave us a command, Be fruitful and increase in number. The pairing of men and women for sexual union, for the purpose of the reproduction of children, has been there since the beginning. And this teaching is then emphasized again in Genesis chapter 2, when Adam and Eve are united together. The author of Genesis writes, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Some want to say, oh, well, the heterosexual teaching on, 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 on marriage is just exclusive to the Old Testament. But that's just not what we discover. When we turn to the Gospels, we hear Jesus picking up the words of Genesis in his teaching on marriage in Matthew 19. And actually, all the teaching that we receive in, on marriage throughout the New Testament is always aimed at a man and a woman. It is always aimed at husbands and wives. And the scripture not only promotes that sexual love is for one man and one woman in the context of marriage, but then passionately defends it in the Ten Commandments, adultery is strictly forbidden. In 1 Corinthians, there's strong teaching is, teaching is given against sex outside of marriage. In Leviticus, in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Timothy, same-sex sexual relationships are prohibited. Some people might find this list uncomfortable. In reality, I found this list uncomfortable. Some people might want to change our view, particularly on same-sex marriage. And, and here are three reasons why I just think we can't do that. One, sexual immorality matters. I was struck again only the other day when I was reading Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible. And here, the Lord God splits people into two halves. Let's look at this together. Revelation chapter 22. From verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts the sexually immoral, the murderers, the adulterers, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright morning star. So we see there quite clearly in Revelation, in the very last chapters, that God divides people into the outcast and the blessed. And in the outcast list, includes sexual immorality. So what sexual immorality is matters. And so thus we should expect to find in Scripture not a confused definition of sexual immorality, but crystal clear teaching on sexual immorality. We have to listen to God's warning here. We have to listen to his teaching. It matters. The second reason why I don't think we can just simply change our definition is our culture is not radically different from the culture that these letters were written in. When you often read the arguments stating that the church should change its definition, a, a common theme, which comes up again and again, is that we just live in a different culture now, in a different day, and age now, and actually our understanding of same-sex relationships is different to what they were in, in Roman times, uh, particularly. But the problem uh, with this, this view, is that historically, it just simply doesn't stack up. And even the pro-gay marriage church historian, John Boswell, or even he he confirms it in his writing, along with many other liberal and conservative church historians, that actually, in the Roman times and in the Greek world, there were lots of same-sex relationships between two consenting adults. To say that we live in a completely different day and age, in a completely different time, completely different culture, well, it's not... I don't think it's good history. The third reason why I think we can't change our position on on marriage... ...is that God is good. The argument that we should ignore what scripture has to say on marriage... ...well, two things seem to be assumed. Either that God doesn't know what he's talking about... ...and thus we shouldn't go along with it... ...or that God is not very good at getting his point of view across... ...and the church has simply misinterpreted it for the last 2,000 years... Both of these positions, I think, put God into a negative light. It either paints the idea that he's just bigoted and he doesn't know what humans need and we should just ignore him. That's a negative light. Or it paints the image that he's just really bad at communicating and really bad at getting his point of view across. And that puts God in a negative light. I can't uphold either of these positions because it seems that I'm dishonoring the name of God. And God is overwhelmingly uncontrollably, unceasingly good. He knows what we need. He knows what humans need to flourish and to succeed and to survive. And he knows how to communicate. The second thing that could be said of God's view of humanity and human flourishing is that actually God's not against same-sex love. He's actually very much for same-sex love. He's against same-sex love sexual activity. But God is for life-giving, brotherly, sisterly love. Jesus had 12 male disciples, and one of them is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. As Jesus is dying on the cross, Jesus entrusts this disciple to care for his elderly mother. When we are saved, we aren't brought into an isolated faith, lead to to wander this, this path alone. God saves us and he brings us into a community, a community which becomes our family, this family of brotherly and sisterly love. And this community is built on Christ-like service rather than selfish gain. One of the many reasons this is evidenced is in the fact that Christian friendships, where they lack a sexual dimension. Sex is healthy in marriage, but sex in friendship makes friendship complicated. And in the church, that complication doesn't exist. A friend of mine, Tracy, was a practicing lesbian before she met Jesus. One of the things she found most compelling about Christianity, and what first drew her to Jesus, was how her Christian friends treated her. They didn't treat her like a sexual object to be conquered. Church, she said, was one of the few places where she had good, deep, intimate female friends. God is for life-giving, brotherly and sisterly love. And as I reflect on my life, I can see that time and time again, how God has given me life-giving, brotherly and sisterly loving friends around me. And I see that as I walk God's way, God is for me in it and he blesses me in it. (laughs) I think of the Parsons, I think of Tom and I think of Katie, who let me come... Crash theirs for Christmas, and he let me come to their house every single week. I think of uh, Mr. Howard Bunting, who, when I told him I didn't have a bike, he immediately lent me his. But then I also think of the time when I came to return that bike to their household, and Caroline was like, well, you've got to come in for dinner. I think of the different men that I've lived with over the years. I think of my current housemate, Eddie. I think of my old Oak Hill buddies. I think of Nathan and Pete, where I used to live in Tunbridge Wells, and Joshua I used to live with in Edinburgh. I have genuine love from all of those boys, and I genuinely love all of those boys. I think of my best friends, Simon and Ian, who have been rocks for me in the different times of life, who are always willing to pray for me, who are always willing to listen to me, who are always willing to talk things through with me, who are always willing to be honest with me and open with me. I have a deep love for them, and I have a deep love for for the lives they live. I have a deep love for them, I have a deep love for their wives, and this love is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. God is for life-giving, brotherly and sisterly love. And this is the sort of love we all need. I need that love as a single man. Widows need that love. Those who have been divorced need that love. Those who have never married need that love. Those who are married need that love. God did not make us to be totally dependent relationally on one other being. So we've got to stop turning romantic partners into idols. The third thing to say, on God's view on human flourishing and relationships, is that God is love. David uh, Bennett again, the gay activist turned born-again Christian, says, love, I have to learn, is not God. Flip that. God is love. The God revealed in Jesus Christ is the definition of love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, one of the things which I find absolutely remarkable are how many people whose scripture labels are sexually immoral end up coming to Jesus and finding him the most beautiful being. I find it remarkable that the church is filled with, with people who, according to our culture, the church hates. I know so many LGBT people who have come to Jesus and found him to be beautiful and who are willing to live sacrificially for him. But outside of that LGBT sort of question, the church is filled with people who have lived in sexual immorality, who have come to Jesus and found him to be beautiful. Individuals who have who have committed adultery and caused people harm, but have come to Jesus and found him to be beautiful. Individuals who who have been or still are battling with uh, pornography and have come to Jesus and found him to be beautiful. Individuals who have been sleeping with their partners before marriage, their girlfriends and their boyfriends, but have come to Jesus and found him to be beautiful. Why is it that the church has got so many people in it who apparently we hate? Why are they everywhere? Because God is love. And for those of us who see the reality of our sin, the reality that there is a brokenness within us, whether that be a sexual brokenness or just something completely other, God's love, well, then it becomes real. Then it becomes urgent. Then it becomes necessary. Those who admit that they are broken, they rejoice when they know that God loves them. Overwhelmingly and completely by giving his one and only son for them. We need Jesus to take away our sin. We need Jesus to atone for us. We need Jesus to bring us to that place of healing and restoration. Because a culture which says yes and amen to every single desire, it doesn't lead to that place of healing. It doesn't lead to that place of restoration. I think of my friend Will, who in a two-year period had sexual encounters with 200 men. And where did that take him? It took him to a bridge because he wanted to throw himself off it. Culture doesn't give us healing. Our sexual obsession of our age doesn't bring us healing. Only Jesus can heal us. Only Jesus can restore us. Only Jesus, because only he reveals to us the very love of the Father for all who are broken. Thank goodness that we have Jesus. Thank goodness that we have the most liberating and accepting and joyous gospel which we can proclaim to absolutely everyone, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter their life, no matter their identity, this is good news for all, and it is for all. Thank goodness for the love of Jesus. And it's because of God's love that I can stand here today and say that I'm glad I'm a Christian, Yes, there's sacrifices. Yes, there's times it's hard. But I know the love of God. And that makes it worth it. What does all of this mean for us here today, here in SIDCUP? Well, I want to acknowledge that I am fully aware that not everyone is going to totally agree with me. In fact, you might have listened to what I said and totally disagreed with me. And I want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for respecting me and for giving me a a chance to speak. There will be those in the room who have probably been where I've been at different times in life, who are struggling to understand why does God have this teaching on sexuality? And, And can I just encourage you, if you're struggling to come to terms with it, just push into Jesus. Push into Jesus. He is rich in wisdom. He is rich in resources. He is the truth. If we push into him, there is light. We can gain understanding here on earth, if not fully and totally in heaven. Push into him and he will help us. There'll be some here today who are just feeling sexually broken, who know that they're struggling with sexual immorality, maybe nothing to do with the LGBT stuff, maybe to do with pornography, maybe to do with sleeping around, maybe to do with just uncontrolled lust. Well, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and you will find forgiveness and you will find healing and you will find transformation and you will find joy and you will find love. Come to Jesus. And can I encourage you, as you come to him, will come and be open and be honest with his children and with the church he has placed you in. Be honest with those people and let those people minister grace to you, because there is an ocean of grace awaiting you. There might be some here, if you just want to think a bit more about this, you've just got lots of questions, well, can I encourage you to um, uh, check out the Living Out website? Um, And there's just loads of resources, podcasts, videos, testimonies, answers to to difficult questions. There's loads of resources available on that Living Out uh, website. And some of you might be thinking, I hear what you're saying, Adam, and I agree with what you're saying, and I just want us to be the most inclusive place we can be to anyone who is sexually struggling in any sort of way, and can I say that is yes and amen, and that's what I want. This is a scary prayer, but a a prayer I often pray for for every church I'm in, so now in this church, is that we would be filled with men and women who are LGBT and who are sacrificially living for Jesus, And that every single one of them would know this place to be a place of love and acceptance and joy. And so I can encourage you to pray that prayer with me. And can I encourage you to make every step and ability to accept people for how they come through the door and to help people walk with Jesus. Knowing that for some people, it will happen in a click, and for some people, that will take years and years and years. Whoa. That's been a lot. Let's just take a moment to reflect, and then I'll pray. Dearest God, Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God of love, a Father, a Son, a Holy Spirit, in an eternal loving relationship. That you are the God of love who saw us in our sin, in our rebellion and sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Thank you that no one is too far and no one has done anything which cannot bring them home. Thank you, Father God, that when we come to Jesus, we find forgiveness and we find healing and we find restoration, we find transformation and we find joy. May we, Father God, be that community which shows Jesus' sacrificial love to everyone. And may that be evident in the way that we treat people, in the way that we talk to people, in the way we encourage people, in the way we walk with people. May people in the world, Father God, see us as a church which knows Jesus, but also sees us as a church which loves like Jesus. We ask all these things in his most precious name. Amen.